0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Wheelchair Activist. This is a podcast hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, where I talk to some amazing disabled people and some amazing allies of the disabled community. In today's episode, we are talking to Dom Hyams. You probably know who Dom is from his social media presence and probably even more so for his work with the fantastic Purple Go Agency. If you haven't heard of the Purple Go agency, you will find out all about it in today's episode and what it means to be a disabled influencer. I'm so excited to jump into this conversation.
1: Pushing for the school to be adapted um, to my needs. Hope that they're gonna give you the same care budget to give you the same independence. But of course, for so many people, that's not possible.
0: Wonderful. Dom, thank you so, so much for joining me on the We Are I have been so excited to talk to you about you and everything that you do. And I was wondering, could you tell our wonderful audience a little bit about who you are?
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you very much, Emma, it's great to be here. Um, So my name is Dom Himes. I'm head of strategy at Purple Goat Agency, uh, which is the world's first and only um, influencer-first disability-centric marketing agency in the world. Um, Me personally, I have Brittle Bones. Um, I'm a full-time powered wheelchair user, and I live in South London. I don't know how much more you'd like. Um, My pronouns are he and
0: him. Lovely. Thank you. And... I want to really talk about disability in marketing and in influencing, because I think it's not something that a lot of people necessarily put together, um, unless they're in the disability space and they know of amazing disability influencers like you and I do. But I think what is it that sort of makes disability influencers different or what makes them more appealing to brands and companies to work with?
1: I think the first thing probably to say is that for for too long the disabled community haven't been thought of as commercial entities. So brands haven't necessarily included them appropriately in their comms, in their marketing. And so we have just Essentially, been othered as this community when actually 20% of the population have some form of disability. And so, for brands to ignore that group is crazy. You know, they should be thinking of this amazing group that they could create really bespoke comms towards and include those communities because we know that we, you know, we appreciate marketing that represents our own community and engage with brands that do that much better. So I think that, you know, the first thing is we need to see more companies doing this. And it's great to see that there is that starting to happen. Um, But to your point, you know, why disabled influencers? I think that we've seen this amazing kind of reality that when you have a disabled influencer and they share their own lived experience through their channels, there's no kind of, alternative there's no kind of mistaking their lived experience and their perspectives that come through in the content they produce i think all too often we've thought of influencer marketing as this is a an influencer trying to sell diet pills and that couldn't be further from the truth in terms of where where the community is now and where you know influencer marketing is now we we tend to say more content creators, to be honest, um, now. And and our currency is really the authenticity. So it might have been at its start, you know, the least authentic thing you could see as an advert where someone sells you diet pills. Um, but now, you know, if we create a campaign and we, you know, want to activate creators and connect them with a brand, a really large part of our job is finding the people that actually you know resonate and have a relationship with that brand already because that's the most important thing if if something looks you know not authentic then it's probably not going to resonate with the community and not hit the mark you know the the social community are, are really savvy and so you know you would be instantly kind of taken down a peg or two if you were trying to shoehorn someone in that didn't quite feel comfortable with the the campaign that they were working on so so as an agency it's really really important for us to bring that authenticity um from the start and when you do you create such a great brand affinity you create really strong engagements you see really strong click-throughs so there's the business case behind it as well so actually we see great results from disabled influencers that often outperform non-disabled influencers so there's there's plenty of benefits and and it's only just starting, you know, disability influence and marketing is, is much newer really than the influencer marketing kind of industry that's been going on for nearly a decade. I think we've only really seen disabled talent um, sort of start to make careers out of this in the last two, three, four, really.
0: I think that that's so interesting, a couple of those things that you just said. I mean, the business case behind... Accessibility is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. You know, in terms of the purple pound, which is the spending potential of disabled people and their families in the UK. But I think that that's really interesting what you said about how you you have evidence for disabled influencers outperforming non-disabled influencers. And I know that there's a lot of research around like brand loyalty. With disabled people, because I know as a disabled consumer, that if I've seen a brand be active in the disability space or if they acknowledge disability or include a disabled person in their marketing, then I will be more likely to purchase whatever the product is that they're selling. Of course, you know if i if I need and want it. But I just think that that's really interesting that you have sort of the evidence to, to back up, you know, this is not just step into the spending potential, but look, you could actually outperform if you use a disabled influencer.
1: Yeah. Like we have to be very data driven in what we do. We report back on all of our campaigns in really microscopic detail. Um, and, quite often we're activating disabled and non-disabled influences simultaneously because you know we don't want to as much as anyone else necessarily kind of get away as a disabled community and there are often campaigns where it's about creating great diversity and a range of experiences and that means activating different people and and for us, you know, we are therefore able to really drill down and and see how different people perform. I think one thing that we were always we're always amazed about is is sentiment and how something lands with it, its audience. And you know, often brands sort of talk about wanting to create more brand love, brand affinity, and that's through kind of analysing the sentiment of the campaign. And we just see results that. People genuinely can't believe they they're like, well, everything's positive, you know like ninety nine point five percent positivity, and that's because there's no there's no kind of thing you nothing you can replace with like reality you know if someone's explaining why mm. a smart speaker is a really amazing accessibility solution for them and they're demonstrating that through a real world experience that might be really engaging and fun and you know who's going to have a negative you know perspective on that because the reality is that yes absolutely that's a accessibility solution that's changing their life so I think some of the narratives some of the stories we can tell um you know really help our cause in that way because they're real and they're they're authentic and they're genuinely like life-changing in, in a lot of you know a lot of the time so so yeah it's, it's a lovely place to be where it's not just us trying to boost representation and slog just saying you have to do this and banging you know whipping the sticks going go on go on please do more representation um we're also able to say like no there's a genuine reason from a business perspective why this is the right thing to do as well as it being the right thing to do, if that makes sense.
0: No, it completely does. And I'm really interested in the way that it works. Do you find that it's mainly brands and companies coming to you saying, we want to attract more disabled customers? How do we do that? Or is it you going to brands and saying, look, we could work with you to increase your reputation or visibility or whatever it might be in the disabled community which one would you say is the the leader
1: to be honest it's a real mix and um, we we absolutely get companies coming to us and more and more wonderfully it's word of mouth from one client or one individual that we work with then saying oh you should work with purple goat and it then snowballs from there which is obviously great because then people come to us and they know who we are and what we're about. And we don't essentially have to sell ourselves in that sense. They're already bought into the idea of what we do. Um at the same time, there are of course clients that maybe know that they want to do something in and around diversity inclusion, but they don't know where to start. And so we have to kind of hold their hand and signpost them through that experience. Um, and that's you know, quite a big group of people as well, that they, they know that an agency like us is probably someone that they could or should work with, but they don't really know what to do. And then we kind of scope that out with them. And then the final group is the group that we know that maybe they're fundamentally not doing something right or there's an amazing opportunity where, you know, we thought of this great creative idea that actually we could do this with you and and then it is you know more difficult in a way because you've got to find the right person and you've got you've got to find that champion in an organization to really sort of you know bang the drum and make sure that the right people hear and see it and sign it off Um, but similarly sometimes that does create amazing results because you're able to take something that's been maybe stuck in their ways and doing things you know this way for however many years and we're going in there and and shaking things up and and doing that in a good way, doing that in a way that, you know, we're being sensitive to their corporate agenda. We're not trying to ruffle too many feathers. We're trying to just get them to be better. We we know that no one can be perfect and we don't expect our clients to be perfect. We just expect them to be open and honest about where they are on their journey of inclusion, but commit to be better, commit to iterate the practices over time and be better tomorrow than they are today
0: and I'm really interested in what brought you to this role sort of what was your career history before joining Purple Goat
1: yeah it's it's kind of a mad journey I suppose we're not mad but it's it's interesting that I found myself where I am and people often ask like they ask a normal question like oh do you like your job And I was like I can honestly say that I couldn't imagine doing any other job now. Um, it's this is a melting part of everything I've done up to now. Um, I started in TV production. Um I was a TV producer for a company called Sunset and Vine, um that were the kind of production partner of Channel Four for the Paralympics in 2012 and 2016. Um I kind of sidestepped into different digital production kind of roles. So, you know, producing content for YouTube channels for the Olympics and and creating like poker um, you know, like programs and things like that. So slightly more digitally focused as the kind of YouTube thing came along. It was like right in that way there's things were just starting to take off. Um and so I kind of got digitally savvy there, I suppose. And then moved into different kind of disability related uh comms and marketing roles but always in a kind of i suppose you know um sort of smart city kind of disruptive um sort of thin tech kind of area and then um and then essentially lockdown came around and I found myself sort of twiddling my thumbs a bit um but but because I was put on furlough and um and in that process, I just thought, well, you know, I really enjoy doing XYZ. i Z. I'll set up a, a little agency that I call Tiny Man Digital and I'll help brands kind of adapt to this digital first world. So whether it's uh, they need a shop creating for selling digitally, whether they need a brand identity selling or whether they need some help with making their comms more inclusive and accessible, I can kind of help businesses with all of that to some extent um and so I'd kind of just set myself up as tiny man digital and and away I went and one of my kind of clients became purple goat as it was just just starting for me to come and do a lot of their social strategy and content creation and then essentially I the days that I needed to work the purple goat became more until I ran out of days in a week. Um And the working relationship, similarly, was so great and harmonious. Working with Martin and the Purple Goat team, that it quickly became apparent that what we were doing was it wasn't in competition, but we were both kind of progressing to the same agenda. We both had the same aspiration in in life as individuals, but in terms of from a, a business perspective as well. And so, it made total sense to do it together rather than. You know apart um and I never ever look back you know it's it's been so great to to work at purple go what you know the ceiling of where it could go is so high you know we're already working with global brands on a daily basis um and helping shape how global brands talk and think about disability, so in terms of you know our input to a conversation around. Disability and progressing those narratives, I feel like you know everyone at Purple Goat is is doing that part to to really help that along um, at quite some pace. So yeah, it's extremely motivating and, and extremely rewarding. um You know, in every every single day.
0: That's so interesting how you went from TV producing into this. But I'm really interested in. So you did mention that you were working on. Things like the Paralympics, but when did you start shifting, or what made you shift more into the disability space?
1: It's a really like good question because in my childhood, I would have actively said that I repelled any association with things that were branded disability or like disability-centric or disability anything. And that's because nothing in my life was disabling. Um, You know, if we're looking through the social lens, um, I had a group of friends that kind of threw me around like a piece of luggage and just didn't think anything of my disability, They just didn't, you know, it was just, I was just dumb and that was it. I had a family that Mm. were extremely supportive um parents that encouraged me to to just do anything I wanted and more sometimes they'd push me in a direction to to say oh Dom you should try this I was like that's scary I shouldn't do that and they're like no come on like try this thing You'll see if you like it and 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 so in terms of barriers you know my my mom my dad they fought incredibly hard to remove as many barriers in my life as possible you know I remember when I was about to go into secondary school um, you know there's obviously loads of conversations where my mum was pushing for the school to be adapted um, to my needs and it was the one that all my mates in my primary school were going to go to but it wasn't yet accessible so there was you know a number of years of work in prep for me to go to that school but once it was made accessible. It was great, and then obviously other disabled kids could go to that school as well, um, which was which was amazing. But it was you know uh, sort of normal in inverted commas state school. Um, we'll probably use normal a few times today, I'm sure. Um, and then and then I went to university, um, and again you know had a very normal experience, um, and had an amazing time it was the first time I had um like living carers because up to that point my family or friends had always looked after me and I'd live in carers that were volunteers from abroad in the same age as me so they basically became like um mates from uni but they didn't have to mm-hmm. study and all too often I forgot that and they were like "Come, let's go out let's have fun and I'd be like oh, wait a minute, you're not doing an essay today, whereas I have to. So sometimes, uh, yeah, it was a a hard uh, thing to manage when they always just wanted to have fun. Uh, but it was brilliant to make genuine friends that also were there um, for the experience, but also to be my carers. Um, and in university, I would say that that's when, I know this is a really long answer to your question, but in university, I think that that's where I kind of felt this, I suppose, maturity around... My relationship with disability like I'd always been extremely comfortable in my own skin and you know no one could say anything that would offend me and I would almost challenge people to 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 do that and and I always was very aware of my boundaries and my limitations and all of that stuff um but I would say that you know at that point where you're that little bit older and you're seeing people come into the uni maybe that are younger than you And needed some like guidance so i i I mentored a bit at university There became a realization that actually not just my mindset but also my opportunities that i'd had up to that point really put me in a position of privilege and and so i could kind of help share some of my thoughts my feelings in and around my life um and that have value to others um And so, you know, when I came out of the university and the opportunity to join Sunset and Vine, it was actually on the Channel 4 graduate scheme that I got onto. Um, I was, you know, jumped at it. And I, you know, maybe as a 16 year old, I wouldn't have, but as a 20 year old, or what was it, 21 year old, 22 year old, um, I jumped at that opportunity. I was like, wow, I can, you know, I can work on something and help progress the conversation here around disability. And that's something that now I'm really comfortable to, to be a part of that community. And I mean, as soon as you start working on something like the Paralympics, you're you're, you're flooded with disability and like eat, sleep, disability, repeat kind of thing. And uh, and I I suppose never look back. You know, I've been involved in all sorts of things since then, like the Disability Power 100. I was a founding editor of, of that. And then... I was one of the kind of media advisors on the first Disability Confident launch and and all sorts of things um, in and around that and very much embedded in what I'll call the disabled community. Um, and yeah, and absolutely love my place in that puzzle.
0: I think there were so many things in what you said that I think are so interesting. But what, I mean, just how you started off at answer by saying that your life wasn't, Disabling as a young person, I mean that really resonates with me, and I think that really will resonate with a lot of people because it it really puts the social model of disability into practice when you don't experience barriers, you are not disabled and i I don't know about you, but I think that my sort of like young life you know, and I had the same experience as you where all my friends just treated me as Emma. It wasn't Emma with SMA or Emma in the wheelchair or anything like that. It was just Emma. I think I'm so incredibly lucky to have experienced that. But do you sometimes feel that that can make adult attitudes towards disability harder to deal with because you know that it can be, Normalized, because you experience it being normalized,
1: I think that's a really good point. I think I was speaking with someone the other week around why your kind of association with disability changes into adulthood, and I think that for me, a lot of it was because there were more barriers in in the way as you could become an adult and move into adult life. There are more kind of like bureaucratic, boring things um to deal with. And a lot of them have intrinsic barriers in place that mean that the disabled community are at a disadvantage. One one is um, you know, housing. You know, when I came out of university, I went back home straight away. I lost in some ways a lot of independence by going back home and living with my family, you know, as much as we all love our family. You you taste that freedom of of university and then uh uh, and then, you, you know, you go home. Um, luckily for me, a couple of weeks later, I got um, this house come up that was available. It was through Harts County Council, Harts County Council. that They just gave me 48 hours. They're like, do you want to move into this two-bed flat? Tell us in 48 hours. Like, yes, you know, I think so. Yeah, let's go. Wow. Um, and uh, and that was amazing. And, and I don't have anything negative to say about that. But then when I wanted to move again a few years later, um I, you know, went to Hearts County Council and I said, Hey guys, like I, I'm working in London every day. I'm driving to Hammersmith in my car from Harpenden and it's like two hour drive each way sometimes. So it'd be much better if I live in and around central London. Um, can you point me in the right direction of where to start? And they were just like, Are you sure you want to move to London? Why don't you get a job in Harpenden on the high street? That'd be a lot easier for you. And genuinely oh, that was their answer. And I just couldn't believe it. Like this is the head of disability for Harts County Council and that was their advice. And and the like the barriers to movement are so huge. You know, obviously one local authority doesn't speak to another one. Um, but also if you've got a kind of care budget, then that doesn't transfer automatically. You have to genuinely just hit and hope and then land in the new authority and and just hope that they're going to give you the same care budget to give you the same independence but of course for so many people that's not possible if if for any reason that didn't happen then you're completely stranded um and then and then and the extra layer is you know social housing huge wait list so again you might not just just be out a move and private accessible housing is few and far between and um, so that's just one tiny topic in and around it and of adult life that you're like oh, okay this isn't a level playing field here. Um, and I think that yes, you're right. Like adults probably see this stuff when you know I'm talking about my childhood. They're like, oh, you know, everything's great. <laughs> and and actually, you know, in, in real life, in the real world, there are so many things that just are a massive barrier, a massive, you know, obstacle in the way of just doing what you want in a way that everyone else does
0: yeah I mean housing is a minefield really when it comes to disability because as you said those accessible properties are so few and far between and there are so many barriers in the way to getting those and I mean I wish I was surprised at the response that you got you know why don't you just (laughs) work closer to home instead of Do what you A want to do, B, have studied and trained to do. And you know, there are they making the same type of suggestion to a non-disabled person. I would be very interested to know if that happens. And I think it's really, it's really difficult to get through to people sometimes those examples of all those barriers that disabled people experience and how tricky little things can end up being because of all of these barriers. And I find, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I am, it, even when I'm in work mode and I don't necessarily have my lived experience of disability hat on, it's really difficult to separate those two. So I mean, that when you work with companies and brands and trying to stress some ways that they can improve. I mean, how much of your lived experience comes through? Or is I mean you said it's very evidence and data driven, but how much do you feel that your lived experience informs your work?
1: And like incredibly um I'll lean on my own feel on certain things a lot. Um, and by that I mean almost as a as a marketeer, as someone that, you know, works in ads, so often you're almost forced to, I suppose, stereotype to like get under the skin of a community. And of what we obviously tell brands is that we don't want you to do that for the disabled community um because you don't know it. And because you don't have disabled people in your organisation, so we're an agency with 50% plus lived experience of disability. So let us lean on our lived experience here to help start to guide what this creative can look like. And I think as an individual, I think, you know, a lot of the disabled community might say, well, you know, what's your your kind of skills that have come from your disability? And I think that empathy is definitely one. And I would say that when it comes to working with brands, you know, I'm thinking through the lens of me as a marketeer, but also me as someone that I think has a pretty good handle on how the hive mind of the disabled community think and feel about something. And, you know, there's so much nuance and how, you know, you would think about a certain topic compared to me is going to be so different in places yet, we will have so much common ground. We do a lot of trainings um, with brands, and and we'll sit. You know, more than one person than Purple Goat will will sit on the trainings, and we'll all answer a question, and our three answers will be totally different, and yet we still have the same approach, same tonality to disability and, and media, but our lived experience gives us a very different. Personal lens that we're looking through, and with that as well. So I think it's also about you know, as much as we bring our own lived experience to the table, um, it's ma- making sure that we're not just thinking that we represent as an individual the the whole disabled community because we know you know categorically yeah. that's not the case.
0: I think that that's such an important learning though for disabled people, and I know that that really. Happened to me. I mean, when I graduated university, I worked in a condition specific organization and I just so happened to have that condition. And then I moved into the pan disability space and realized that, yes, I've, you know, my entire life worth of experience in disability, but there's so much about disability that I still don't know because. I will never experience what it is like to be visually impaired or, you know, to need a service animal as much as a loved one. Um, But, yeah, but, you know, there are so many things that you aren't going to be able to experience or understand. But I think I love that in your trainings that you do have different people to give those different perspectives, because I think when it comes to brands, it's so important for them to represent the diversity because i I'm just it's weird the first example I'm thinking about is Barbie because I remember that Barbie had a wheelchair user, Barbie, and I think that they still do, but they recently have come out with a hearing impaired Barbie who has a hearing aids and I just um, I love that example because it shows like just because you've done the quote unquote disability Barbie doesn't mean you've done all disabilities
1: yeah we we all too often have to talk about the tick box of the wheelchair user Um, you know an image of the wheelchair user slapped on a, a campaign or a pitch deck or whatever it might be and it's like We've done disability now, guys. Let's move on and pat ourselves on the back. And we know that that is just the the shortcut to creating disabled representation. One thing that we often pull up in our trainings is a an image of uh, someone in a wheelchair, and I, and we ask them, we ask the audience um, of the training to to say what they think's wrong with the image and why. As an individual, if I'm reading an article and I saw that image, would I instantly be turned off from it and know that the person that wrote it, you know, hasn't got necessarily experience lived experience or a strong connection or relationship with the disabled community? And the answer is that this image, you know, is someone in a wheelchair that um the wheelchair is essentially rubbish and it's like a rental wheelchair, and then we can deduce that 99.9% that individual in the wheelchair is therefore not disabled, because if they were, it would be their own wheelchair. And it just clearly isn't. And, you know, would you ever imagine any other protected characteristic being represented by someone else nowadays? So it's, you know, there's a long way to go in in that representation conversation as well, and that kind of how far we need to come from the tick box to, to genuine inclusion. I would say, though, that I suppose on the flip side is People are scared to to do everything. So for them, like the first step is like, well, okay, we'll we'll put the wheelchair user in at step one. And it's like, well, as long as step one's not the last step, then like I wouldn't be so angry with it. But ninety percent of the time, that is the last step <laughs> that they go to. They're like, oh, okay, we'll always be that. We'll just be the wheelchair user. Um, just slapped into this, you know, advert for half a second or whatever else, or someone in the background in a in a movie or whatever it might be. And um and that is, is better than zero, but it's just not representative of the disabled community. Only eight percent of the disabled community are well Jesus. So you know it's not really reflective in that sense.
0: I think you're so so right. I think brands might tend to lean towards the wheelchair user because it's so visibly disability, but I really love what the example that you gave about the image of someone in a rental wheelchair. I mean, I it, I think when you are disabled, you can point out those little inaccuracies, and I do think that you're really right. Like, I think as time has gone on and conversations around different marginalized groups are getting bigger and stronger as they should be, like people are straying away from only representing an LGBTQIA plus person in one way, or a black person in one way, because they have grown to understand that yes, that's part of their identity, but it doesn't inform everything. And I think with disability, it's I don't know, people just shy away from it so much because they're so unfamiliar with it but the only way that you get familiar with it is to be exposed to it so it's, it's a little bit of a catch-22 yeah
1: and you you have to have the you know the lived experience in the room to some extent so we know that agencies often don't have disabled employees in them and you know that it can be a quite an elitist world and so there, there isn't a great representation of disability in there. Similarly, in the brands we work with, you know, often we're not ever talking to disabled members of staff in the marketing teams, of course. And, you know, they might lean on the d team somewhere to come and join a conversation, but they're not necessarily involved in what we're, we're doing and so or not available or whatever else. So, you know, all too often people making decisions aren't the people that... Can benefit from from you know doing progressive good ads and so you know even though it's a minefield for them we just come in and we say well this is difficult for you because you're not the community and that's totally okay you know mm-hmm. like it's not supposed to be you're not supposed to have the answer um but you're supposed to know how to try and start getting the answer so you know point one you're now talking to us so great we can kind of help you and put in the direct direction but similarly you know if we want to flip this campaign on its head and do something that isn't stereotypical let's bring someone in from the community that we could represent to actually talk about how we would do that authentically and for them like that's not difficult because it's them and and you know like we might struggle to go okay well how was someone you know that's visually impaired um be authentically represented in this ad, if this is the kind of script that we're going for. And then, you know, if, if we get someone in the room from that community, they're going to be able to talk us through that. And and that sounds simple, but it's just not being done. And um and that again is what where we try and kind of handhold people through that experience and make sure that they're starting to be more more aware to do those things.
0: I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this because I imagine you have a lot of NDAs and things but what is the most surprising thing that a brand has said to you and that could be surprising in a good way or surprising in a bad way when it comes to like a question that they may have asked or a comment about disability just something that's really made you go huh
1: great question and I'll answer it diplomatically um in a way i think that all too often we would say we need to be representing disability here and we need to have the like representation in the room and all too often because that from whether it's practical perspectives or ego perspectives that like doesn't become the option that the client wants to go with. They're like, oh no, but you know, we've consulted with this person and you and whatever, but we want to launch this um with just this exec from our company and this person. And we want to do it at this environment, the environment's not accessible, or whatever it might be. And we go, well, that would be insane if we were doing, let's say we were gonna launch a Um, race and ethnicity playbook and we were going to launch that and then but then we weren't going to have anyone from anyone non-white there you know like that would be the example like it just would not ever happen but we come across similar kind of thinking around disability a lot um where where someone would go well you know we we've consulted with you guys and we we just want to push ahead with this um but you know we're not technically going to have any representation there. Um, and and you and you kind of sort of sit there and and think, well, like, what, what? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And so often it's around like, I suppose, convenience. You know, we, we things there are barriers in place, but that's the whole point. You know, if you're trying to fly someone to another country and they need an accessible room, but they need that to be at an event, but the event's about accessibility then maybe that then it's not the right then to be up um, and and so you know even though that's a huge barrier and it makes the brand we're talking to like have a really difficult time because they'd always planned for this to be the way we're going to do it um it, it's the reality so we can't we can't escape the reality of the lived experience where where suddenly that that thing is really inaccessible um and uh, and they don't—they're not used to hearing a no. You know, they're not used to those barriers being in place. So for them, it's like quite a hard pill to swallow sometimes. But it is just you know, what what we have to work with sometimes. I hope that explains the answer sort of well enough.
0: Yeah, I'm curious. Do you think? And I imagine this should be an incredibly small proportion, but do you think that any of the people that come to Purple Goat, will just want to say that they have worked with a disability specific agency or you know someone a a company that specializes in disability but then doesn't practice what you're advising them to do do you feel like sometimes it's just a matter of saying oh well we've we've consulted because I know with my work with various companies sometimes like you'll give recommendations on what needs to change and there'll be pushback for X number of reasons. Do you think, okay, well you've consulted with me and this is what I advised. And if you don't want to take it, then that's that's on you.
1: There are definitely times where we realise that our job is like more consult consultants than anything. And we you know there might be a media ticking time bomb if someone does the wrong thing. And and we have to say, like, we... Well, well, first of all, we say we don't recommend you do this. But then secondly, depending on how strongly we feel about it, we have to say, well, we're going to walk away from this. And and that is fundamental. Like, why would we ever do something that we don't believe in or agree with? We don't want to be just the rubber stamp seal of approval to make... to to, to validate something if we don't agree with what it is, I think that there would be something very misguided about us. us you know, that would be only deemed to sell it out really, wouldn't it? Um, and we're never ever going to do that. You know, we're going to always progress uh, a narrative that is comfortable for us as an agency. Um, and and I think that we have to do that to give us our worth as an agency as well. So there, yes, we'll have difficult conversations sometimes. Um, and I would say, like you know, more of them are not. They're not. You know, people are there to want to learn. So it's not like this is the regular. But but sometimes we are there and realize, oh wait a minute, I'm having to talk back to the <laughs> chief marketing officer of Blair, and you're you know you can't believe that that's your Tuesday morning, um, but it is. And um, and you're not there talking back to make things difficult. You're there to talk back because they've asked for your insight. They've asked for your perspective, and you're going to give them your honest reply. And yeah, as you say, sometimes it's not what they want to hear, but like, but sometimes it's what we have to say, um, which is, ama- it's an amazing experience to, to see the inner workings and the inner sanctum of some uh, bigger global brands and how they work. And and similarly, it's great to see how receptive some are as well. And they genuinely want to do good. Um, so it's not all, it's absolutely not all, you know, doom and gloom and, machine is awful because there's plenty of good people in those big machines as well
0: what is the biggest or the most significant piece of work that you've done with purple goat that you sort of feel the most proud of or you feel really accomplished something again I imagine there are loads you can't talk about that might like still be ongoing but of the ones that you can what are you the most proud of
1: yeah I think so I'll give you two um one is we have kind of recently launched a campaign that we've been working on for about a year um which is supporting the EU or the EC um with their with their launch of their disability strategy for 2030 um And so on a European level, they've got this plan of how they're going to create genuine change in and around the the disabled community. And we've activated 27 different countries simultaneously with disabled influencers in their native languages. Um, So across 23, 24 languages Um, and and, you know again we're we're kind of shining a light on disabled creators in these territories which is awesome we're progressing the conversation around disability um in countries that have extremely different perspectives when it comes to disability um and trying to find a common tonality around that and a progressive conversation around that and then thirdly we you know it was one of the projects where we've had to you know really think long and hard because we were helping on the branding as well so we were we were helping kind of brand this project and you know coming up with a name around it and an identity and when you're trying to do that where it works in 23 24 different languages and different territories that's quite a difficult one to do so I think from a kind of you know big thinking project perspective that was really cool I would say and you know this is under NDA but we're also working with a very large social networking platform. Um, And we're kind of working with them on the, you know, foundation of how they work with creators and how they frame disability in their internal thinking and their comms. And so when you think about, you know, the benefit we can do as an agency on a global level where so many people are on this platform, that's quite awesome, you know, because we'll be helping to shape the the conversations that are going on. So as well as helping them with the content side and putting things out there, we're also helping them kind of behind the scenes and helping shape really progressive, you know, playbooks around how to work with disabled creators and, things we should look out for and, you know, the different lenses we could look through on disability to start some more interesting conversations and, and that kind of thing.
0: I'm very interested as to what that social platform is. I have a suspicion, but I will not ask you to disclose it. And I want to ask you, I'll, I was tempted to only ask you for one, but if you want, you can give more than one. What is or who is a disabled content creator? Or influencer that you think my audience should know about?
1: Oh, great question! My God, I feel put on the spot. That um,
0: you can get more than one. I thought, well, I'll ask for one, but that might be mean.
1: I'll, 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 I'll make it easy on myself by um, picking people that also have brittle bones or OI, because then I can't be sort of thought of as a uh, sort of. Picking ultimate favorites, um but I think that what you see in uh, Jim Turner's content on you know, well, all platforms, um, I just love how honest and open and real and, and she is, and humorous disability can be funny. um so that's amazing. And then I'll also give a shout out to shani um who is you know literally changing the world one UN convention at a time um, and post some really kind of insightful and considered things across LinkedIn. And then you've got Sam Rinke, um who, you know, is all over our media now on different various shows. Um, and again, bringing like a reality to how we frame and think about disability and not, being apologetic with that, but you're owning who she is and really branding herself as as she is, um, and she's just released a book, so I, I need to see if I can get some uh you know kickback for that. But yeah, check it out. <laughs> and so yeah, I'll go with those three because they're doing great stuff in very different ways, and um and that gives you a nice little insight to some some creators with OI.
0: I absolutely love that list. Two out of those three people are guests on the podcast. we've already had Samantha, who I love and adore. And Shani, by the time this episode comes out, her episode will be out as well. Um, so definitely go and check that out if you're listening to this. And then I'd love to have Jem on, um, the podcast at some point. Cause I, I love her content. Um, so no, I think that that is a fantastic list and we've touched on your sort of childhood and your upbringing but I'd be really interested to know what advice would you give to your younger self
1: great question um to be honest I would say that keep your eyes open soak up as much knowledge and and understanding as you can don't think you've got all the answers because the older you get, the more you realise you don't. And so learning to take in the sort of perspectives of others as early as possible, I, I think is really, really valuable. And and then I suppose, finally, just don't worry or overthink about decisions. So many of them do work themselves out, especially if you have the kind of can-do I'm gonna make it work attitude um and so, yeah, I think just and enjoy you gotta I do enjoy life, I do enjoy everything I do, but I think that you know often we're too preoccupied to sometimes remember to do that, so yeah, enjoy everything that comes your way.
0: I love that advice, I think that that's applicable to so so many people and. I just want to say a massive thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been so interesting to hear from you about your history and about the work that you do. And yeah, just thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Emma. And, um, you know, this podcast is great and I'm loving seeing it going from strength to strength. So similarly, great, good luck. And um, I can't wait to see you. Where it goes.
0: Ah, oh, thank you so much. Six in Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wheelchair Activist with Dom. I think it's so amazing what he is doing with Purple Goat to try and get brands more disability aware and to market towards us because we are customers, same as everyone else, with amazing brand loyalty. So why not tap into that? I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Before you go... I want to remind you that we do have a GoFundMe set up for this podcast. We are 100% committed to accessibility here at The Wheelchair Activist, and we want to make sure that every bit of content is inclusive and accessible to all. Every donation allows us to continue doing this work, which includes captioning each and every episode and making it available on YouTube. Thank you so, so much to everyone who has donated so far and has allowed us to continue making this amazing podcast. Please give this podcast a share far and wide so everyone can enjoy the amazing content. This podcast has been hosted by me, Emma Vogelman, produced by me and Isabel Anderson, and edited by Joe Tapper. Thank you so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you in the next one.